All right. Hello and welcome. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Charles Gatebe. Gatebe is a climate scientist, the Atmospheric Science Branch Chief at the NASA Ames Research Center. So hello and welcome, Gatebe. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for having me having me on the program. <laughs> so you just come on board here at Ames. Uh, I was hoping you could actually introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you do. Uh, my name is Charles Getebe, and uh, I'm going to be the chief for the atmospheric sciences branch at NASA Ames. Previously, I was a scientist at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, where I've been for the last 21 years. Unbelievable. Wow. And all, all that time, I've been supporting the airborne sciences there. And uh, I've worked on various topics from aerosols, clouds, ocean, land, but mainly focusing airborne missions. Mm. So and what inspired you to pursue this area of science? For me, the it goes back all the way to when I was in graduate school. And let me put it a different way. I think it goes all the way back when I was an undergraduate student. When I originally am from Kenya, you know, and we lived in a rural area and very clean environment, you know, blue skies all the time, you know, very clean air. And you end up going to the university at the University of Nairobi in a city which is very polluted by then. And the smell of, you know, the air and all that goes with that kind of triggered me to start thinking about what I should do to help solve the problem. And I remember when I was doing my my project in the during the undergraduate years, I was walking on the streets and sampling pollution or emissions from motor vehicles, trying to determine how much pollutants the, the motor vehicles were producing. And then we would try to link that to the impact on health. So, so that was the, the first, you know, inclination towards going towards climate studies. And I then pursued uh, a master's degree again, for, focusing on the same 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 area, air pollution. And for my PhD, I decided to look at the long-range transport of pollution because. In 1990s, people recognized that not only was pollution local, but it could also be transported to distant places. And satellite images that time were not as plenty as they are today. So what people do was to run some trajectories or mathematical models that would allow them to determine where pollution was coming from and if it is produced in a certain area where it was you know being transported 
So for me, it was interesting to understand those dynamics. And coming from Kenya and uh, doing my PhD in South Africa, which was highly industrialized by then, it was essential to try to understand whether uh, pollution that was generated in South Africa could be transported to Kenya, places like Kenya, which didn't have a lot of industries or other places. Other questions like uh, is Saharan dust, for example, transported to the U.S.? At that time, the question was very fresh. There were some professors here in the U.S. who were studying that long-range transport of Saharan dust to Florida and other places. So it was of interest to me also to understand the dynamics of the Saharan dust transport either to America or to Europe or another place. So I did PhD focusing on that on that topic. And that led to the Young Scientist Award in mm. 2000. I was recognized as the Young Scientist Award. I was given the Young Scientist Award uh, back in 2000 by the World Meteorological Organization, which was pretty prestigious, you know, 180 something countries. And, you know, hey, you are a young scientist, you know. So that was a big deal for me, I think. So that, that is what actually, you know, led to my journey to the U.S. to do a postdoc, one-year postdoc, supposed to be here for one year, but hey, still here, even now, <laughs> when I arrived at Gorge, it's going on, and as, as you have seen in some of my stories that I've shared in the past, I'm so excited about science, anything science, I'm, you know, I'm always excited about it. I so, love so that's it. how I kind of, uh, you know, can I explain my journey into what I do today, right, from undergraduates and then, you know, wondering about pollution and, you know, following that led to a PhD that studied the long-range transport and then eventually coming to NASA to use space, you know, tools to study pollution, you know, so that was 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 how I kind of ended up to where I am today. That's what that's an amazing journey. I mean, it sounds that my biggest takeaway in listening to you, it sounds like you have a very curious mind, um, which is good for a scientist. You should be very yeah. curious. Did you have mentors who helped you along your way while you were going through your journey? That's an interesting question. <clears throat> and I sometimes wonder when I was young, who really inspired me to go to where I was going? You know, I grew up in a place where I was the first to go to college, not just in my family, but in the village, the whole village. There was nobody else like me, you know. Wow. So you can imagine that, uh, you know, I didn't have role models there that said, oh, you know, <laughs> you want to be like so-and-so. But at a very early age, I was always curious learning and running to write and read. Mm -hmm. I was telling my sons when I was maybe three to four years old, when I started learning, verbalizing A, B, C, D, you know, I would write anywhere. <laughs> you know, so excited. A, you know, B, on windows and whatnot. You know, it was, you know, <laughs> I was so excited about learning. And my brothers would come home with some books. I was a third born, I'm a third born in a family, in my family. They would come home with their books and, uh, you know, 
hey, I could always find myself wanting to read them and, you know, got so excited. So so that's what I was I was dealing with. Didn't have role, major role models uh, to follow. I was just interested in reading. And um, I think naturally I'm competitive. So, <laughs> and the Kenyan system is, you know, encourages this idea of, you know, who is number one, who is number two. And maybe that even explains why, you know, we're very competitive in this races. You know, we dominate the world in in running. So, so the whole the school system is designed that way. you're always competitive. You want to be number one or number two. And, you know, that kept me going, you know, from grade school. You want to be, hey, to place at the top, you know, and then go to the next phase. And you had to pass a major exam. If you don't pass, you can go. So, mm-hmm. so it was always those kind of uh, forces that pushed me through the system were trying to mm-hmm. compete. And then finding myself at the university and being, wow, you know, <laughs> you know, Nairobi University that time was was the oldest university, the oldest university in Kenya. And, you know, we only had three universities and they, they would have like, what, 1,500 students, you know, whole country. Wow. So very small number, you know, starting with um, hundreds of, 100,000 students and adding up you know, being one of 1,500 students, it's a big deal. So very competitive system. And then, then of course, you know, things led from there. You know, being competitiveness is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it, it leads to, um, it can lead to better innovation. It can lead to, um, I'm for some reason, maybe because NASA, I'm thinking of like the space race. I mean, it can lead to pushing people to do things in a very short duration. Um, so that's that's really interesting to hear that. With with you at university, did you study um, just climate science, or did you go in thinking you were going to study something different and then change it down the line? At the university, undergraduate, I studied mathematics, physics, and and meteorology, mm-hmm. and ended up majoring in mathematics and and meteorology. So, and I pretty much studied, you know, stayed there. Meteorology is hey, it's about weather, you know, yeah. about weather affects climate, affects transportation, affects. Mentioned that there are so many aviation as well, you know. And initially, I was, I took meteorology because somebody, one of my professors told me that uh, if you want to take a career that will give you a job quickly, I think they are trying to hire people in meteorology, so you better as well take this. <laughs> you know, so I, okay, yeah, I need a job. You know? <laughs> It was very fortuitous. It worked out very well. Yeah, it worked <laughs> out. You, know, you need a job, so you've got to do it. So that's, you know, that pushed me towards that uh, direction. And and actually, when I look back, I say, I don't think I would have enjoyed anything else better than the way I'd, I enjoy atmospheric sciences or sciences in general. Mm. You know, at one point, I toyed with the idea of becoming an engineer, you know, and that was because my father was always speaking highly of engineers or something like that. And then he said, okay, I won't want to do that. 
And uh, but to me, it was always about you know things that were challenging. I remember I gave an interview recently to a Kenyan audience of about 2.5 million and a big, 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 larger audience, and. They were asking, they asked me the same question about, you know, what really pushed you to studying, you know, mathematics, physics, and so forth. And I told them it was because some boys in high school are also always saying that mathematics and physics and chemistry, they are very hard, very, very difficult. And and they would, in fact, they do not cope their hands because you know it's so hard you don't have the time you are like crazy supposed to be crazy in fact they called it it's mpc mathematics physics and chemistry mad people's combination you know <laughs> <laughs> that's how they and i said well i will go find out you know so i started doing mathematics and physics and chemistry and i was like still i don't feel anything you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you can you can hear that. So I'm hearing these voices telling me that this is difficult, and I want to go there and try and see how hard it is. And I realize it's actually a lot of fun. You start learning about the world and things, yeah. and you know. So it's it's kind of you know very interesting how I got into all this. It is really interesting. And from what I can take so far, you don't shy away from a good challenge. It sounds like you like a, a good challenge and to Mathematics, be physics, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, there you go. Go to the moon. Oh, yeah, sure. Let's go. You know. <laughs> um, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, um, I, I am a science communicator. I, I love to communicate about science and talking to you guys, the scientists. So I was pretty thrilled to learn about these science story talks um, called Maniac Talks that you and your colleagues have coordinated at, at Goddard. Uh, how did this come about and what what's with the name, the Maniac Talks? It's a very, you know, it stands out. It's not something you would expect. So, but how did this come about and what what is it all? Um, I guess, talk a little bit more about what the talks are. Maniac Talks, yeah were founded back in 2011 and what inspired them was the need to inspire our younger colleagues people who had just joined nasa goddard or nasa in general and they didn't know exactly where they wanted to go and given that nasa has has all these talents we felt there was a need to expose the younger scientists uh, to these talents and allow them to see the wide career choices that are available at NASA. Mm. And uh, the best way to do it, it was to have the senior scientists give their own life story and addressing questions like how did they get into science and what inspired them uh, to do science or what inspired them to do what they do there. And given that some of them had been with NASA for several decades, what kept them going? Because that was useful for somebody just entering uh, 
NASA or other places doing science, just knowing what has kept these people going, I think, was, was I think, important to know. So, so, yeah, so that's what really inspired, you know, the original thoughts. You know, how do we bring the younger scientists and the senior scientists together to learn and then inspire them so that they can continue the, the science enterprise? <laughs> so that's how we, we figured this thing out. And we started. And what surprised us is the, the, the amount of interest there was uh, because... The first meeting, actually, that we held, or the first seminar, so to say, that we held, was, you know, scheduled in a small room. And there were so many people that that room could fit. <laughs> and people were asking, why did you, you know, put this kind of thing here? You know, we needed a bigger room. And so the following one, the following seminar, then we had to go to the bigger room. I thought that was too big. And then everybody came and they had no no places to start, you know. Oh, wow. So then I realized, you know, the interest these seminars were having is, is because they were very unique. We, we didn't have anything like that on center. And the fact that, you know, imagine these very senior scientists like the John Martha, the Nobel physicist, speaking about how he got into science, what inspired him when he was young and all that. It was really fascinating, you know, stories to hear. And I kept inviting speaker after speaker and, you know, the pool got bigger and bigger. And I did that for eight years. So it was been a long journey. And so we have an archive currently. It's on, on the NASA website. We have almost uh, eight lectures who shall record it. And uh, it's a very good archive for younger scientists who want to learn something about uh, our famous scientists and also, you know, what kept those scientists going all that long. That's a lovely story. And what um, it's nice to see things like that take off because it's people get we all get very bogged down, don't we, into our own little worlds. And we forget sometimes that we connect best through story and learning about people because the the science is, of course, amazing. I love hearing and learning about the science, but the people behind the science um, are the ones who are driving it. So it's that's that's very cool. Um, I'll have to definitely take a look at and see if we can. Um, maybe someday we'll do something similar at Ames. Who knows? I'll keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> but yes, I, I just thought that was I thought it was a lovely, lovely thing. Um, so now to get a little bit into your research, actually. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it's like to be part of a, a science field campaign. You've done probably a number of them at Goddard. Um, what sort of instrumentations are you looking or have you used and what sort of research have you um, specifically, but maybe just a one campaign in particular that leaps out at you? I've been on many, a few campaigns, I think almost 10 field campaigns over over the years. The one field campaign that stands out above all others is excuse me, is the actors in back in two thousand and eight where we flew through uh, fires up in Canada. 
you know, huge fires, huge smoke plumes, and NASA P3 would just penetrate through them. And we had all these NASA instruments taking measurements of radiation of gases, trace gases, and so forth. But there were some folks also from NASA Ames participating. Uh, you know, Phil Rasso was one of them. Uh, Jim Podolsky was also another scientist who was on board the, the NASA P3. And I was there running one of one of the oldest NASA instruments called Cloud Absorption Radiometer. So it was the, the PI. And it, it was most fascinating at one point is when we decided to go through the, the plumes, smoke huge ones up in Canada. You know, nobody knew what was there. We didn't know whether the aircraft would go in and disappear, <laughs> you know, mm. had no crew at all. And so the pilot had to circle the, the plume, just kind of get an orientation of how it looked like. And then when they got a, an orientation, a, you know, a good feel of how it was, then they kind of went in and we had to count one, two, three, boom, you know. And all of a sudden, within a few minutes, the entire plane aircraft was dark and wow. just a brownish color was there. At that time, I was, you know, running my instrument and watching the signal screen. And all of a sudden, the signal almost disappeared. And I kind of wailed, thought that, I have destroyed my instrument. I thought Oh it's, no. And a few minutes later on, I started seeing you know the, the response again from the instrument. I said, What, what, wait, wait. You know, it was it was like magical. <laughs> so so I have never forgotten that that experience. And then we went out and then the instrument went back, it was running as smooth as it could. And when we finished the campaign. And one of the things I had to do was make sure I analyzed that data and see what was there. And we published a paper in 2012 about the, you know, the pyrochemeras, you know, chemeras crowds made from fires. It's a, it's a very nice paper. We came up with new, new, new discoveries, so to say, about fires, which people had not seen before. So, wow. so that's one one campaign uh, that uh, actually stands out uh, above all others, and, and there are many others I can give other mm -hmm. examples. Have any of your campaign or the research that's come out of your campaign um, has it driven any sort of what am I trying to say, like policies, or has it helped to inform policymakers when it comes to pollution or limiting pollution or any actions that they can do? If I think of policy influence, there was along the same com same campaign, we took some measurements in over the Pacific, just off California. We were actually operating from the Moffett Field, and it was part of Actors Actors campaign. But we needed to take some measurements, fly through the the emissions, the smoke plume from from the from ships, you know, would, you know, big, you know, crews, you know, would fly through the the plume, and uh, some of the colleagues were interested in sampling that those emissions and analyzing what they had. So at the same time, 
my instrument which was in the nose cone was scanning through the atmosphere and also looking at the uh, the, the ocean surface. And uh, during that campaign, we bumped into something that was actually very interesting also about ship wakes. You know, if you look ship, at that, the ship wakes, not, yeah, not the, the aerosols. The, the, you know, look yeah. at white, bright, you know, yeah. service that we, you know, the reflection that we see when the ships are cruising through the, the water. We measured those and it turned out that and we actually wrote a paper which got a lot of media attention and it also the IPCC was also interested in looking at that because of the implication of uh, what the wake can do in terms of cooling the climate because that's the argument we were trying to make. Oh how interesting. Yeah that uh, you know at that time Paul Cluson one Nobel laureate had suggested that uh, because greenhouses, greenhouse effects, you know, due to carbon mono, carbon dioxide and other gases is likely going to warm the climate. So they had suggested that if we can, you know, spray, you know, sulfur particles in the upper atmosphere, then that would scatter away the light from the sun and therefore lead to cooling mm. and uh, you know this is very strange idea of course because mm -hmm. they were only looking at one aspect of that because it could also lead to other disastrous effects because if you're cutting off radiation from the sun coming to the surface in the name of trying to cool the planet that could lead to other other problems so we, you know, so we we made these measurements over over the ocean, where we had ships, and we showed that in fact there is enhanced reflectance from the ocean when ships are moving through through the ocean. So we argued that if you have many of those, and we showed mathematically based on our results that then that could potentially lead to something very similar. So you do not have to, you know, spray salvates into the upper atmosphere, which would scatter light and probably leads to other problems. All you can do is, you know, perhaps look for ways that you can enhance the reflectivity of the ocean. And then perhaps that could help. And I think there was also a paper published in Science by somebody from, I don't know whether it's from Harvard or where, I don't recall, which was talking about the ocean bubbles, which tends to be bright and, and so forth, and we're making a very similar argument. So our study was, you know, this is not hypothetical. We're looking at the, the data from NASA instruments, and this is what they're telling us. So if we use that as the, the starting point, as the basis of our argument, so we can demonstrate that uh, you know the ocean will become brighter if you have many of these ships. Uh, but then there are some folks who are arguing that, but if you are you're going to use ships to do this, they are also emitting gases, carbon dioxide, right. which would harm the climate. So how are you going to do it? When maybe you have to come up with uh, 
something else that doesn't ship that doesn't burn you know fuels that would produce carbon dioxide so that's so they were, it kind of you know raised it to a level whereby the it was being looked at you know by the the IPCC intergovernmental panel yeah, that's IPCC. fascinating so that's yeah oh, i can't believe it's it's that's what's really interesting to me about research because it can you can start out with a, a whole idea of it and hypothesize how it can go and it can lead in different directions. I mean, you just and that was know how it's going to be. I mean, we didn't know. We didn't know that. In fact, when I was making the measurements of uh, the BRDF, bidirectional reflectance distribution function measurements that I typically make, and that's my specialty, the, um, I was just taking measurements. I, you know, because I'm interested in looking at the the distribution of uh, the reflected light from any service. And while I was doing that, then we see this ship coming through the scene where we were making the measurements. And I was just curious, what is this doing? And then finally leading to this, it was interesting. So it was a paper we published. It got a lot of uh, some media attention. See, it helps to be curious, going back to that curiosity aspect. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it helps to fuel it. Um, so we've talked a little bit about um, mentorship and talked a little bit about some of your, your airborne campaigns that you've been part of, but you are the PI for a new science activation project through the science mission director, uh, director, excuse me, it's called the Student Airborne Science Activation for Minority Serving Institutions, or SASA, S-A-S-A for short. Um, so I wanted to ask, how did this vision for SASA come together and what are you hoping to achieve with this project? I was, thank you for the question. I think we're actually very excited about the selection that NASA was able to recognize that this is a very important, uh, a very important proposal and was selected for the next five years. And uh, the way this was conceived was partly because of our own realization that if you look at the data, the last 40 years, the minority representation in geosciences, it has remained relatively low, uh, you know, despite its increase in the proportion in the US population. So, and we recognize this even when you look at the, the, the diversity of geoscientists, even in NASA work, workforce. It's, we don't have minorities like me who are in science. And I realized that because I have been lucky, been privileged to be part of NASA, that I have an obligation also uh, to do something to help bridge this gap, increase the number of STEM degrees from minority-serving institutions, if possible, by working with them. So in this case, we are working with six minority-serving institutions on this coast, and we plan to also include more universities across the U.S. And we want to work with them to help recruit students who can be prepared to enter the STEM workforce. 
you know, because if you want to broaden the ethnic and racial diversity, scientists, I think we need to first, you know, fill the positions that are available in the government process. So, so we have to show them that, well, if you do STEMs and you can get a job in the science and it's not as difficult. Remember what I told you about my going to math and physics and chemistry, people are saying it's hard. So we need to, you know, assure the our kids that it's not that hard. You, they can make it and they can be part of this enterprise. Yeah, that's really exciting. Um, I can't wait to see where this is going to go. It sounds like a very unique platform and just a, a very inspirational way to get people on, to get them on board and everything. And like you said, especially in the earth sciences, um, better productive science, we know this as for a fact, better productive science comes when you have um, you increase the community and you get a very good dialogue with different perspectives of people coming on board. So that's exciting. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing where that's going to go. Um, we're definitely and every year, I might say oh. that uh, every year we uh, plan to recruit about 25 students who will be recruited into the SASA project. And they will be required to participate in a, an intensive eight-week summer airborne experience. And I think that's what is going to make this you know, very, very unique. And also work, working very closely with the, the Student Airborne Research Program, SUP, that aims currently run. So we are hoping that those two, whereby the, the Student Airborne Research Program will focus on senior, senior students, sophomore and senior, but yeah, mainly senior, sophomore and senior, junior and, 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 and senior students. While SASA will focus on the uh, first year, second year university students. So I think those two programs will sort of help each other uh, to help broaden the you know, the diversity of, 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 of students uh, in uh, taking up the, the STEM careers. Mm. Well said. So we're coming towards the end, I think, uh, with our time allotment, but um, I did want to close out by asking you one more question, and it's a bit, it's a bit of a broad one sort of kind of along the lines of, you know, what's the best part of being a scientist. But I thought what, what could be fun is asking you if there were a couple of key points or a couple of key takeaways that you wanted to convey to the public about your particular science work, um, why you do what you do, what would you want to say to the lay public about it? <clears throat> I would say that the the most important issue facing us is climate change. That one without a doubt. And, and it's a huge problem. And the only way to address this problem is all of us have to come together from scientists like us, policymakers, you know, we all got to come together and make sure that climate change is addressed. And that's one of the reasons 
I do what I do. In California, we are faced with fires that we have never seen for many, many years. And every year they seem to be getting bigger and more intense. We saw the same thing happening in Colorado. It's, you know, bigger and more hotter fires are happening. And those effects were predicted way back in 1990s when people started hypothesizing then that climate change seems to be coming. And there was a lot of pushback then. And But every year we seem to see evidence of the climate changing. Uh, so we got to bring our best brains, you know, best resources uh, to, to this particular problem. It's a huge, 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 huge animal to deal with. Absolutely. Well said. Um, Dr. Gatebe, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's You've got some really big things that you're working on. I can't wait to see how it develops. And I can't wait to see the research that you're going to be putting out here at Ames. Thank you so much for having me on this program.